0: Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Corlin Morning. We are your co hosts, Jason Crawford and Mona Lombardo, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. Today's episode takes a close look at potential FCA risk associated with small business subcontracting. Our guests today are Olivia Lynch and Gabby Trujillo. Olivia is a counsel in the firm's government contracts group and is based in the DC office, where she counsels large and small businesses on all manner of small business government contracting issues. Gabby is an associate in the government contracts and white-collar groups, and she's based out of our L.A. office, where she has experience representing clients in False Claims Act litigation. Welcome to you both.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks, Jason. Yes, welcome, Olivia and Gabby. We're glad to have you here today to talk about FCA risks that arise from small business subcontracting. Most government contractors know that their failure to comply with small business subcontracting plans can potentially result in liquidated damages under the FAR or negative past performance ratings. But an emerging trend suggests that there might be a far greater risk when a prime contractor claims credit for awarding small business subcontracts to companies that actually fail to meet the necessary size and status requirements. So that risk involves our favorite topic, FCA liability, and of course, the sector of treble damages. So before we dive into the FCA risks associated with small business subcontracting, Olivia, can you set the stage here by describing the statutory and regulatory regime underpinning small business subcontracting requirements? Sure.
2: So one of the ways that the government tries to maximize creating opportunities for small businesses to participate in the federal procurement system is by inclusion of FAR Clause 52219 9 in contracts with other than small contractors that are over $700,000, and provide for opportunities for subcontracting. What this clause requires is for these prime and higher tier contractors to set goals for the amount that they're going to subcontract to different types of small businesses. So just general small businesses as well as SDBOSBs, small businesses in historically underutilized business zones, and WSBs. Agencies as part of the procurement process can choose to evaluate. The goals set in those small business subcontracting plans, they also don't have to, but once a contract is awarded where FAR 52.219-9 is included, the contractor will have to report against those subcontracting goals annually and semi-annually, and failure to make a good faith effort to meet those during contract performance can result in liquidated damages as well as concerns raised in their past performance.
0: Thanks, Olivia. So as a general matter, prime contractors are not required to independently verify the status of their subcontractors for reporting purposes, and the legislative history of the Small Business Act Amendments of 1978 indicate that Congress intended for prime contractors to be able to rely on the representations of small businesses because Congress recognized that prime contractors might have difficulty in determining whether a subcontractor is owned and controlled by a socially and economically disadvantaged person. And so Congress determined that contractors could rely on written representations by their small business subcontractors. Gabby, can you tell us about how the government's small business program offices have operated under this standard and what it means for their expectations of higher-tier contractors?
3: Thanks, Jason. As you mentioned, the government's small business programs offices generally recognize that higher-tier contractors lack the information needed to make fact-specific determinations about size and status. So, the various small business programs such as the SDVO-SB program and the 8 Business Development Program permit the higher-tier contractor to rely on subcontractors' representations so long as the higher-tier contractor is acting in good faith. But This still leaves contractors to grapple with how to craft policies and procedures that ensure compliance with the amorphous concept of good faith reliance. It's clear that contractors do not have an obligation to independently investigate a subcontractor's size or status, but they also cannot look the other way if there are red flags.
1: Thanks for that overview, Gabby. So as Gabby mentioned, higher tier contractors who fail to address potential red flags relating to the subcontractor's small business status a la the quintessential ostrich sticking its head in the sand, run a risk of failing to act in good faith in relying on their subcontractor. So there's a case out of the Eastern District of Washington that helps illustrate that risk. Gabby, can you describe for us the facts and holding of USX
3: Rail Savage v. Washington Closure Hanford? Sure. In Savage, the DOJ intervened in a key TAM suit against defendant Washington Closure Hanford, Which held a multi billion dollar contract for the environmental cleanup and closure of a portion of the Department of Energy's Hanford site. WCH's contract included a 65% small business subcontracting goal. DOJ alleged that WCH had not implemented its subcontracting plan in good faith when the Prime claimed small business credit for subcontracts awarded to two WOSBs. SageTech and Phoenix Enterprises. According to the complaint, WCH knew that SageTech was acting as a pass-through for a large company called Federal Engineers and Constructors. The DOJ alleged that WCH knew that all of the work awarded to SageTech would actually be performed by the larger company because SageTech lacked relevant experience to perform this specialty waste site remediation work that was called for under the subcontract. SageCheck allegedly employed only one person, had no equipment, and had only $50,000 in assets. The government alleged that these were all potential red flags. But what ultimately may have prompted the DOJ to intervene in this case was that WCH had an internal email from the prime contractor's subcontracting specialist discussing how much SageCheck would be paid. The specialist email stated that SageTech was only entitled to a small markup because SageTech wasn't adding any value to the subcontract other than providing its small business status. Similarly, the DOJ faulted WCH for claiming credit for awards to Phoenix because the SBA had determined that Phoenix was not eligible as a small business due to its affiliation with FE&C, the larger company. Specifically, the SBA had determined that Phoenix and FE&C were affiliated because Phoenix's owner was a full-time FENC employee, Phoenix was located within FENC's office space, and had the same phone number and mailing address. FENC also prepared Phoenix's cost proposal for the subcontract, and Phoenix had no employees and no receipts. WCH did not claim small business credit for the initial award to Phoenix, but the crime did claim small business credit for the subsequent modifications to the contract.
0: Thanks, Gabby. What was the government's theory and how was the case ultimately resolved?
3: Well, according to the government's complaint, WCH was incentivized to misreport compliance with the subcontracting goals because the contract gave DOE the option to assess liquidated damages as well as the ability to reduce WCH's incentive fee payments by $3 million for each contract milestone if small business subcontracting goals were not met. The DOJ sought the full value of the contracts awarded to Stage Tech in Phoenix as the basis of the damages before WCH settled the allegations in 2018 for $3.2 million.
0: Thanks, Gabby. I think Savage illustrates that determining whether a prime contractor relied in good faith on its subcontractors' representations, whether the prime acted with knowledge sufficient for a finding of FCA liability, is a fact-dependent inquiry. In Savage, the allegations suggested that the prime contractor knew or at least should have known, that Sage Tech and Phoenix were not bona fide women-owned small businesses. Of course, Savage could prove to be an exception based on the factual circumstances. But Olivia, would you agree that there are certain factors to suggest that the Savage settlement could be indicative of a growing trend?
2: Yes, and I'm going to run through four of them. First is either the government's or a relator's desire to go after a defendant with deep pockets. We're seeing increasing amounts of money being recovered from small businesses after allegations of small business fraud have been alleged, but that is a recent trend and it's definitely not something guaranteed to continue. Many times when small business defendants are faced with FCA allegations, the conversation can quickly go to ability to pay. And so in circumstances where you've got a large business prime contractor who, you know, you can allege shouldn't have been relying in good faith on certifications received related to their small business subcontracting plan, those are, I think, pretty attractive targets. The second factor is that the small business subcontracting goals that really across the federal procurement system, the federal government, individual agencies, and large businesses have to meet are fairly aggressive. You've got statutory requirements that At least 5% of all subcontracts be awarded to socially and economically disadvantaged small businesses. At least 3% of all subcontracts be awarded to small businesses and hub zones. And so oftentimes in order for federal agencies to be able to meet their own subcontracting goals to small businesses, they'll push in procurements for prime contractors to be evaluated against their proposed small business participation and can include higher goals than maybe achievable or can set up the procurement in such a way that you've got large businesses bidding with pretty aggressive numbers in order to help them win the work. The third factor is this is an area where we do see the typical type of relator who's employed by a company who brings allegations of small business fraud, but it's also an area ripe with disgruntled small businesses who legitimately feel like they're losing out work to companies that are not complying with the rules. And so, for example, in the Savage case that Gabby and Jason discussed, the relator in that case was the owner of a small business that had lost out on the subcontracts awarded to Sage Tech and Phoenix. And the fourth is something that we can't forget, is the statutory presumption of loss for cases involving allegations of small business fraud there is extra leverage provided by the Small Business Act's presumption of loss rule, which provides that if a concern willfully seeks and receives an award by misrepresenting its small business size or status, there is a presumption of loss to the government of the entire value of the contract or subcontract. For example, in Savage, DOJ sought the full value of the subcontracts that had been awarded to Sage Tech and Phoenix And the court actually ruled against WCH when that prime contractor sought partial summary judgment on the permissible scope of the government's damages.
1: Thanks, Olivia. So those factors are really important. And it's also worth noting some of the other cases, in addition to Savage, that further reflect the growing trend of FCA matters that arise out of the contractor's alleged knowledge of small business subcontracting fraud. Gabby, can you briefly highlight
3: for us a couple of those recent cases? Sure, so I'd like to highlight two recent cases. The first is PCA, Integrity Associates, LLP. Earlier this year, a case was unsealed alleging that student loan private collection agencies failed to execute small business subcontracting plans in good faith when performing work under a Department of Education contract. The non-intervened suit alleges that the prime PCA's claimed credit for awarding tens of millions of dollars in small business subcontracts to companies that the primes knew were ineligible because of issues of affiliation. In total, 10 companies were named as defendants, nine of which filed motions to dismiss, which are now fully briefed and awaiting decision. The second case is Fedlaya v. DynCorp International. And on September 4, 2019, a U.S. District Court in Maryland denied a motion to dismiss a QTAM complaint alleging that the defendants falsely represented the status of workers to make it appear that they were employed by small businesses in order to fulfill small business subcontract requirements on a $4.6 billion interpretation and in translation contract. By allowing these cases to proceed into discovery, but LIA becomes the latest warning sign of potential FCA risk associated with small businesses.
0: So given the steady rise in cases alleging small business fraud, contractors would be well-served to plan ahead and develop procedures to reduce the risk associated with small business subcontracting. Olivia, what are some steps you suggest contractors take to mitigate these FCA risks when implementing their small business subcontracting plans?
2: Sure. So first, when developing a small business subcontracting plan, Prime contractors should be proposing realistic goals, both for the total subcontracting number as well as for the amount of subcontracting they'll be doing for businesses of particular statuses. If you're involved in situations where the government has set unattainably high minimum goals in a procurement, use the Q&A process to, to go back to the government and ask them to reconsider. Maybe they could have a higher total small business subcontracting goal, but lower some of the goals for individual statuses that are giving you concern. Second, contractors should develop a system for vetting new companies before awarding them small business subcontracts. Although the FAR and the SBA allow higher tier contractors to rely on subcontractors' representations as to their size and status, if you ever do find yourself in a situation where red flags are being raised and questions being asked about why you didn't see it, having a good internal vetting program can provide important evidence that you were actually acting in good faith and you had reason to rely on the cert. Third, contractors should do training for their staff. Go over the potential red flags that exist for particular industries. For example, on construction sites, there have been instances where companies will drive up with vans and literally paste different signs onto the side of the van in order to go onto the job site and perform as a different small business or to perform under a different name. So training your staff on noticing red flags like that and then having them look for those not only in the performance of the subcontract but also when negotiating the subcontract. That is oftentimes areas where you've got a lot of information being conveyed and it's helpful for the individuals receiving it to know what to look for. Finally, contractors should have internal controls to make sure that if a company discovers any kind of eligibility concerns with respect to any of their subcontractors, that the prime does not continue to claim credit towards their goals and small business subcontracting plans, but instead implements the necessary investigation in order to determine if they can continue to claim credit for that spend.
1: Thanks, Olivia. Those are some really great practical takeaway points. Well, that's all for this episode. We want to thank Olivia and Gabby for joining us today to discuss False Claims Act risks associated with small business contracting. Please check out an article published by Olivia Gabby and our very own Jason Crawford in last week's edition of The Government Contractor on this topic. If you have any questions, I can be reached at 213-443-5563, Jason at 202-624-2562, And we'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA.
2: Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash letstalkfca.